Welcome to the Les Spellman Podcast, where we redefine how athletes develop speed by giving them the tools to play faster. All right, guys, welcome back. It's uh, It's been a while since I've done a solo podcast, so it kind of feels a little weird. Um, but I honestly, I really like it. Like, I, I love having guests on, and we'll continue to have guests on, but this is kind of my time to, to rant about a subject that I really care about and, like, you know, sometimes I just, I have a lot on my mind and I want to, want to get it out. And I tell Drew who, you know, who edits the podcast, I'm like, man, I just want to get this stuff out. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll try to mix it up here and there and have guests on and uh, different people that, that I'm learning from at the same time. So, but anyway, really, really glad to be back on. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing it. Um, our podcast is now it's gotten it's gotten pretty big. I, I'll get the exact numbers, but it's um, it, it's pretty good. It's pretty good for where we're at right now. So anyway, today I want to be talking about improving variables in sprinting without negatively impacting others. Um, I'll go through a little bit of a rant on facts versus theories versus opinions and beliefs and those types of things. But I really just want to use this podcast as an opportunity to try, try to dive into some of the coaching decisions that we're making. And, and why we're making them, uh, and also how we're making them. So let's dive right in. Um, so the main thing about this podcast is that coaches will typically say um, something is very, very, very important, or this is the one way that you get faster. Um, you know, you look at YouTube, and it's like, if you're not doing this drill, you're not getting better. Uh, and, and typically what happens is, is people overemphasize one thing. Maybe it worked for one person. Maybe it works for a group of people, or even your population. Um, but typically what we looked at, just if you look at physics, look at science, it's more than one thing. And it's 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 actually pretty similar for most people. So we'll, we'll dive into that. But most of the Twitter arguments that I see, um, you know, take squatting for, for sprinting, for example, or is deadlifting bad for you? Like all these Twitter debates, a lot of these things are opinion. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rant a little bit just about the different types of things I see on Twitter. So the first thing I see is there are hard facts. So when we're talking about Newton's laws, when we're talking about um, physics, science, uh, you know, even these can be tainted by opinion sometimes. And sometimes we, we gravitate towards the things that fit our worldview. But there are things that are just facts. Like gravity is, is, is facts. Acceleration of gravity will always be 9.8 meters per second squared. There's no arguing that. Twitter, sometimes we'll, we'll, people will argue facts, but there really is no counter argument. Now, the second thing that we see on Twitter is beliefs. So beliefs, um, well, I'm going to go out and say like, no, thank you on the, on the beliefs part. So beliefs are when people say, well, I believe this. And it's like, well, is it founded by anything factual? Is it founded by anything that's listed in research? If it's not, then that belief is your belief in you know, honestly, like there's probably too much of the beliefs on, on Twitter right now. Now, the next one is opinions. Now, opinions can be valid. It's, it's how we view the world. And opinion, opinions can be based around facts. Um, an opinion is I believe something, um, you know, I believe something based around my worldview, based around where I'm at. So beliefs and opinions can be very similar. Now, expert opinions are a credentialed opinion. So Dr. Ralph Mann, 
or Dr. Lawrence Seagrave or any of these any of these coaches. Um, if you look at Dan Paff or Stu McMillan or Jonas Stodu, those are expert opinions on a subject. So when they talk, I typically listen. Um, although, yes, you do have to take it with a grain of salt because opinions are still opinions. Now, the next part is probably where we should start looking at um, probably going into is hypotheses. So they're more questions. I wonder if I have an athlete do a certain type of start, if they'll be faster, right? And, you know, one way we can improve this space is by asking more questions. And I, I need to do a better job of this too, but asking more questions and, and giving people a chance to respond and seeing where they're at without really putting in an opinion. Um, you know, obviously an hypothesis is quite opinionated because you're, you're asking people about a subject that, um, you know, you're asking a question that kind of has an answer in it, but hypotheses can be very, very, very valuable in the public space. Um, and then the last thing is theory. So I have a theory that if an athlete puts their foot in this position at the start line and et cetera, et cetera, um, so yeah, I think theories can lead to more hypotheses and then continue to push this forward. Um, reading reading a book right now, Ralph Mann's book, where he has a story about Lawrence Seagrave. And basically, Lawrence Seagrave, if you don't know Lawrence Seagrave, he's one of the greatest coaches of all time, one of the greatest track coaches of all time. Um, I've never met him. I would love to if you guys know him, but I've never met Lawrence Seagrave. But Ralph Mann went to Lawrence Seagrave and said, hey, um, Based around the research that we've done on all the top performers in the world, we found that a tight lower leg recovery angle was actually detrimental to sprint performance. Um, and if you've seen Lawrence Seagrave on YouTube, he has this drill called the butt kick and thigh pop, which essentially creates a ton of flexion at the knee uh, and max velocity, which creates a super tight lower leg recovery angle. So Ralph Mann comes to him and says, hey, this is actually not correct. So Lawrence Seagrave, being the coach that he is, with no ego, he goes to his athletes and he tells them, hey guys, I made a mistake. And then he made changes and then went on to have performances that were unbelievable. So this is a type of um, non-egotistical worldview that needs to really exist in this space to make changes. And all of us too, like I, I make tons of mistakes and I make changes based around expert opinions and facts and even hypotheses and theories. But this is where we could be a little bit more open, uh, just in just in this space. And it will help us in communication with each other. So we're not attacking opinions. Like opinions are opinions. And if you believe that, uh, then cool. We'll roll with it. So let's start with more questions and hypotheses. Um, okay. So going into segment one. So we're going to talk about sprinting variables. So what are the variables that impact performance, especially sprint performance? Um, obviously we've heard of, you know, power and stride length and stride frequency, but, uh, really like one thing that I want to also discuss too, is that there's, there's three things that are always going to be true. We're talking about sprinting variables. Okay. The first thing is that all athletes are going to perform better in competition, no matter what all athletes will perform better in competition. So my athletes will perform better at the NFL combine than they can during training just because of. Uh, anxiety, their arousal, all those things will help them perform. Okay. The second thing is that mechanical errors are going to be displayed that are displayed in practice will also show up in competition. So if they, if they show a certain mechanical flaw, 
that's going to show up in competition. And the same is true for strengths. So if an athlete has a strength, it's also going to show up in competition. Okay. Now, when we look at analyzing these sprinting variables, we have to understand that the competition is really the goal. It's not just training. It's not just practicing. It's not just hitting fast times in practice. It's understanding what that athlete is going to do in competition and hoping that they display their best performance in competition. So in order to do this, we have to know how to teach. So we have to know how to interact with the athletes. We have to know um, how to actually talk to the athletes so they listen. We also need to know what to teach. So what do we need to teach these athletes to make them faster, to make them stronger, right? Um, you know, if you look in into sprint coaching over the past couple of years, especially my mentors, a lot of those guys were formally educated and taught in an academic setting and then led into apprenticeships, internships, and then eventually they were coaching. So they might have spent almost 10 years in the education academic setting before actually becoming an expert coach. Um, whereas now you see a couple guys hop on YouTube and they're like, hey, I'm a coach now. I can even be guilty of this and, and to some older coaches and they always tell me like, Les, you don't know anything. And I agree, but a lot of us are self-taught now and it's a lot different in this world where um, education happens online and it happens rapidly and it happens fast. Like guys are learning fast. Um, and there's a couple of limiting factors based on that. It, you know, at the speed that we're learning is a lot of coaches are like, well, this is how I always did it. Or this is my favorite coach and this is how he did it. Or I saw this thing on Twitter or I read this book. I read this piece of research, right? So what happens is, is a lot of these coaches may not be going off the facts or the, or the best research or the best way. It might be going off something they learned in the moment and very quickly, right? So when we're getting back to basics and what we're talking about is understanding sprinting variables, we need to understand that velocity is the, the most important variable that we're going to actually look at for sprinting. So how, how fast are we running, right? The greater horizontal velocity will always win the 100 meters, right? If you have every segment of the run at a higher velocity than the next athlete, then you will be faster through 100 meters, right? So what we're really looking at is how to increase our velocity throughout the entire course of a run, right? If you go back to any textbook, you in the beginning, if you Google, Google knows this, there's two things really impact this velocity, okay? Now, the first thing is stride length, right? No one is arguing that stride length is not important, okay? Now, obviously, there's a negative impact of having too big of a stride length, but there's also a negative impact of having too short. Okay, so optimal stride length for that body and your body type the second thing is stride frequency. So again, Google will tell you this, stride frequency is important, but what we need to look into in the stride frequency part is actually broken up into two pieces, ground time and air time. Now my ground time is really gonna be impulse. How much force can I produce in how much time, right? I need a high force and a little time. Now if I have a high force and a big time, my ground time won't be good, okay? So if you think about, yes, we're overly simplifying stride length and stride frequency, but let's look at what creates a fast ground ground time or a very good frequency, right? Now, if I look at attacking the ground as hard as possible, then yes, my ground time will improve. If I look at creating a big thigh range of motion, my stride length will improve. So there's several variables that are based around this tree, right? This is the root of the tree 
And at the top of the tree, you have all these variables that can be impacted, that can actually Im impact the two root things that we need to fix, which is stride length and stride frequency, right? Um, so going back to the beginning, there's some performance concepts that are true and factual for all athletes. Now, when we say this, a lot of coaches are a little fearful. Is like, how could, how could this be true for all athletes? Like, am I not creating an individual plan for this guy? I, I know a ton of coaches that are just like, I'm going to come up with something unique that you've never heard of. I'm going to call it something different. I want to be creative. And yes, that is important. Especially it's important because athletes want to have a coach that is creative and, and create something new for each person. But we know that there's things that every single athlete has to abide by from a physics level. Right. And sometimes coaches fear this isn't treating athletes as individuals. And, and of course, yeah, they want to be unique and different and not like the rest, but there's truth. So there's three things that are really, uh, I would say are truth in sprinting. And this is from Dr. Ralph Mann. The first thing is that front side mechanics over backside mechanics is, is more important essentially. So having a higher front side is never going to be negative, right? We need to have a high front side to run fast and to be able to impact the ground from the top down. The second thing is having short ground time over long ground time, right? A shorter ground time is always going to be better than a longer ground time, okay? And the third thing is average air time over short or long. So I don't want to have a super long ground time or air time. I don't want to have a, sh a super short air time, which is going to allow me, not allow me to project myself forward. So finding the balance between all these things is important. So obviously we're moving in, in this direction and I always say you can't go broke making a profit, right? So if I know if I'm moving in the direction of front side, moving in the direction of short ground time, moving in the direction of average air time, that I can't go broke making a profit. So doing these things and heading in that direction is going to be very important. So we know, we know that improving front side mechanics will always be the right path. And we know improving ground time and having average air time is important. There's a couple other things that I think are important along with this. One of these is having a range of motion between the thighs that's about 100 degrees or more. Um, and then we're really looking at max velocity. Is, is being able to get that adequate range of motion. And the second is contact that's close to the center, the center of mass, right? So we know that these things will all play into improving our sprint model. Now, we, we should also discuss the trade-offs. So... While we improve one variable, we could also negatively impact another. So to give you an example, so if we're improving our front side mechanics, what, what might happen is that we might improve our front side mechanics, but our backside also decreases so that we actually shorten our range of motion between our thighs so we don't get any propulsion, right? Or what we might do is we might get a very, very, very short ground time, but we actually don't have any distance. We, we don't have no projection. We have no stride length. Or if we we do it average airtime, but now the way we get airtime is mostly vertical. We're not actually projecting forward, right? So there's always trade-offs. And Jonas Dodu always says, always says to me, he says, Les, don't rob Peter to pay Paul, right? So that means like if I'm not taking my stride frequency down to improve my stride length always. Now I might have to if it's excessive, but I need to be able to keep one variable strong while improving the other variable. This is a very, very, very hard thing to do. So obviously we've talked about this before, velocity profiling, where you might improve someone's foresight of the equation, 
well, you're actually maintaining that velocity or other way around. You're maintaining the velocity while improving the force. And but as we talk about these very strict kinematic qualities, we have to be very careful about manipulating these qualities and decreasing one to increase the other, right? So we need to try to maintain at least some of that variable, although we might have to reduce it from time to time or increase it from time to time. We want to maintain what's strong while increasing the weakness. Now, a lot of coaches are like, well, we should only work on the on the strength and we should always improve the strengths. And yes, there's a time for that. And I, I've talked about this as we get closer to the season as making sure that we highlight the strengths of that athlete so that they can perform at a high level. But when we're actually looking at improving an athlete, maybe in the off season or maybe during combine training, is we need to look at their weaknesses and bring their weaknesses up and maintain that strength and they're gonna get and they're gonna get better better. So we have a really good example of this in in, in Zach Charbonnet, who's one of our athletes here. He played running back at UCLA, uh, extremely fast, explosive player that played extremely well uh, for UCLA. He just won the MVP of the team. Monster, right? This guy came to us in, in college. He's been running, you know, 20.5, almost 21 miles per hour. Um, comes to us week one, runs, you know, 20.5, 20.6, like kind of consistent with where he's been at. And we noticed that, hey, like, you know, Zach, like your your range of motion between your thighs is not great. Um, and your front side range of motion is not great. And your stride frequency is actually too high. So we actually need to reduce your stride frequency to increase your stride length and get more front side. And that's what we focus on the first three weeks. So week four, we test again. He's at 21.5. And I go to Zach and I say, okay, Zach, in order for you to get 22 miles per hour, which is our goal for week four, week five, we need to actually um, bring back some of that stride frequency and add it to that length. So we reduce the stride frequency to increase the length and got more front side. And now we're reintroducing a faster frequency. So what we did was we had him do assisted um, dribbles. So it's like an overspeed dribble, but it's, we say assisted because he's only running 101% of his max speed, maybe 102%. So 2% over. Uh, we had him, we had basically had the 1080 pull him into a 22 mile per hour run and had him, had him keep it and teach him how to keep that 22 mile per hour run. Right now it's extremely hard to do, but there's, it's a lot less taxing to pull him into that run than it is for him to accelerate into that run. So we pulled him into that run. He's running 22 miles per hour. He felt it. He's like, cool, I got it. I can do this, right? So we come back out today, Saturday, UCLA, and he ran 22.7. And we looked at the data, and he actually increased his uh, stride frequency back up to normal range where he was at while he maintained his stride length and his front side was high enough. So, of course, I go to Zach, and I tell him, like, hey, you ran 22.7. He's like, okay, what's next? I'm like, all right, so now what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go to 23 miles per hour. So now we're going to have to increase that stride length just a little bit more while maintaining your frequency. And that's our whole mission for the next week is hit 23. I believe Zach can hit 23.5 miles per hour before this process is over, which is extremely, extremely fast, which is up from 20 miles per hour. Now, obviously, we're, we're here and we have hyperbaric chambers and massage therapists and one of the best strength coaches in Taylor, uh, you know, we have all the resources, but it's something I think that all coaches can manipulate these variables as long as we're not incredibly decreasing 
their strength. As long as their strength maintains, we can increase their frequency, right? And this is something that we try to monitor on a weekly basis. Um, you know, obviously using GPS is great. So we can track velocities. Um, we have a video software we're using with Jonas Dodu, um, Speed Matters, and it, it's incredible. It's, you know, just set up an iPhone and we capture kinematic data week to week. But we're able to get this data as often as possible so that we can give them actual objective numbers on what to fix. And same thing at the start. So our biggest thing on the start is actually, it's actually really simple. And I'll share this with, with you guys because I think the start is one of the most under respected areas, especially in combine training um, for athletes. So if you look at the data uh, on world, world-class performers in the hundred meters, you actually see these athletes hit about 50-60% of their max velocity in two steps. So from zero step, which is really their stance, to the end of the second step, they're above 50% of their max velocity. So it's incredibly important. Now, when I remember when I was running the 100, and I, I wasn't very good, and you know, for multiple reasons, but mainly because I had a metal leg and I was recovering. But if you look, when I was running, I was like, how important can the first two steps be? Like, I have to be good at everything else. So I didn't really focus on the start, but looking back, like if I had focused on the start, it probably would have been pretty good uh, with the amount of power that I had. But the start can really be a performance enhancer for the 40-yard dash or even any short sprint. That's, you know, obviously the 400 and, and those events have a little bit different percentage value for that. But if I can get into the 50% of my velocity range by the end of the second step, um, I'll be able to get closer to my, my peak velocity within that short sprint range. So the first thing we look at is projection. So how does the athlete project out of their stance? Now, the next thing I look at is how quick can they switch their limbs? How quick can they switch from that peak flexion and extension back towards the ground, which is going to help me create a faster ground contact time. And I create a fast ground contact time. I know my start frequency is going to be there. So just in telling you what I just did on step one, I have a fast enough frequency and have a fast enough or a long enough projection or stride length. And if I maintain that for the first two steps, the forces that are produced in the first two steps are pretty similar to each other, right? So after that step three on, step three to 10 is really transitioning up to top speed. And then 10 plus is really what I would call the max velocity phase, right? But the frequency that I create in steps zero through two the peak frequency that i hit by the end of the second step is going to be very close to the peak frequency that i experience at max velocity so if i can't and there's a massive gap between that that means i'm over pushing i'm taking too long to push out so what we really focus on and we can do this all day is is really mastering our start like you know the start is not something that takes a ton of neural effort um, you can rep the start. You can get the patterns right. You could do a ton of work on it. Um, we work on it on Mondays twice a day. Um, so we do a.m., p.m. And then on uh, Wednesday or off day, we practice it again. Like we keep practicing this because it's something, it's two steps. If you get those two steps right, you could probably get four right. You get four right, you're going to run a good 10. You get a good 10, you're probably going to get a good 20. You get a good 20, you're probably going to run a good 40, right? So what we're doing here is we're patterning athlete um, through repetition making sure they're getting the right projection steps with the right frequency uh, to run a good 5 10 20 and a, and a 40 so 
I just wanted to share that because I, you know, I haven't really dived into our process of what we look at at that at that level, but it's relatively simple. Increase that frequency. Make sure you exit with a good torso angle. And you'll have a good start. Um, and again, like we're looking at all this data on view motion or speed matters with Jonas Dodu, and we have objective numbers that we're trying to hit for each guy. Um, but yeah, guys, you know, like I said, this has been really cool just to come back and do a model podcast again. Uh, I wanted to keep this one short and sweet and really just focused on improving an athlete while also understanding that negatively impacting one variable is could happen if you're not focused on uh, increasing one while maintaining the other. So we can't rob Peter, we can't rob Peter to pay Paul. We have to make sure that what we're doing is very specific to what the athlete's needs are. So if you're not tracking certain data, it's going to be very, very, very hard for you to come in there and make changes to an athlete. So let me know what you guys think of this podcast. Uh, let me know if you try it on a couple of athletes in your results. If you could DM me, if you could share it, that'll be awesome. All right, guys, you guys have a great week. Please tap in, send me a DM, let me know how you're doing, and uh, let's keep building. Thank you for listening to the Less Bowman Podcast. If you do me two massive favors, first, please rate the podcast and give it five stars if you enjoyed. If you didn't enjoy it, please still give me five stars. <laughs> Second, please share this podcast with another coach, an athlete, or a parent who wants to learn how speed is developed. Thanks again for listening and check out the podcast description to learn more.